Good to be back with you today and our back into our study on growth, as you can see, growing up. Now, if you're new, we are in our seventh week of this series. I know I've met several of you today that are, this is your first Sunday. Um, just a, a little word on this. Uh, all of our messages are recorded. They're online. So if you want to go back and check those out, um, I would actually recommend that you listen to them through the app, the Timberlake app. So if you don't have that and you're interested in that, find someone who does and have them you know, share it with you. Uh, but it's, it's on the app store. You can download that, and it's, it's really user-friendly. So definitely would recommend that. Good resource. And it's not just Boundless. There's lots of other um, of, of the ministries that are recorded and on there as well, so you can access those as well. All right, so this is week number seven of our study on Christian maturity, and this we're just looking at how to become more like Christ. And it's always good to study this topic because it's always relevant, right? <laughs> Nobody's arrived. If you think you have, you haven't. Um, it's always relevant to us no matter what stage of the Christian life we're in. To be a Christian means that you are in a process of transformation. It's not been completed yet. And the clearer this process of growth is in our minds, then the more equipped we'll be to pursue it. And the more we pursue growth, the more fruit we'll experience in this really short life that God's given us to live. More glory to Him, um, and all things are better the more we're growing. So, let's start this morning with just a little review here. Uh, kind of hit the high points of where we've been. Alright, our first lesson we were looking at understanding maturity, and we asked this question, what is maturity? Okay, you answer that. What is it? Quick definition. I did a gesture last week, and I'll I'll repeat it again if I need to. Acting, yeah. Okay, great. So you have three words. Let's put them together in a sentence. It's the pattern of thinking, acting, and, and thinking, desiring, acting like who? Christ. So is it the perfection? Is it the arrival of, of perfection of that? No, it's, it's, it's growing into that pattern. Where the pattern of our life is we're, we're adopting a pattern of thinking, a pattern of desiring, and a pattern of acting like Jesus. More and more, but it becomes the, becomes the pattern. All right? Great. So that's, there's a lot more there, but that was the gist of it. All right? In the, in the next few lessons, we looked at these things called means of maturity, and we were looking at how God grows us, or what He uses to grow us, and there were four of them. What are they? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So He gives us His transforming Spirit, and that is key. And what does the Spirit use? Truth, right? That's His sword. And where, does, where do we find the Spirit working through His truth? In the church, yes. And then how does that get cemented? How are those convictions cemented? In the world, through suffering, difficulties, trials, yes. So, High level, there's a lot we didn't say that we could have said about the means, but I think that's a good framework for us. Now, if that's what God's given to grow us and what He uses to change us, what is our role in the process? We haven't really talked about that yet. We've hit on it at different points as we've worked through the series. But if, if we're in sin, what are the steps that we need to take to see this growth become a reality in our lives? And last week we opened with this first major step, we called it the process of maturity, this first step, which was responding rightly to our sin. Right? If we're in progress, if we're in process, 
then it means there's going to be sin in our lives. The Bible recognizes that. And so the first step in becoming more like Jesus is learning how to respond rightly to our sin. Because when we're trapped in sin, we often stay trapped because we don't know how to respond when we do sin. So we looked at this in depth last week, but I'll give you a little bit, little bit more of a review here. We keep on sinning oftentimes in response to our sin. That's because the guilt sets in and we, we despair or we minimize our sin. We try to blame it on others. We try to self-atone in some way. We try to make God happy with us. We keep on sinning in how we're trying to handle our sin. That's not how God wants us to respond. It's like we've been shot, so to speak, in our metaphor, and we're bleeding out, you know, and, and, and the, 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 we, we need to compress the wound, you know, so it stops bleeding. And the way to do that is by simply coming to God with hope, taking full responsibility for our sin in confession. So that's what we covered last time. Just owning our sin, coming to Him in confession, and entrusting ourselves fully to the mercy of Christ and His promises to us and even to change us. So that's the first major step. That's kind of how we break that cycle of, of guilt and compounding sin. It's a giant leap forward. If we can nail this down, that's a giant leap forward in our growth process. So if you missed that, I would definitely encourage you to go back and listen to that message. This, this first step orients us back to God. He's the only one who can actually help us. Now, as important as that is, the Bible doesn't stop here when it comes to transformation. It keeps going. Responding to our sins is a crucial first stage in that process of change, but it leads to another stage, and one I call fighting by faith. Now, it's time to learn to trust Jesus in the battle. Okay. So if you're learning to respond to your sin, okay, what do I do when I sin? How do I respond to that? in faith, and now I'm going to learn how do I now battle in faith? How do I fight by faith? So just as faith was central to the first stage when you were responding to your sin, it's also central to this second stage in your fight against sin. And you can think of it like this. At its most fundamental level, growth is simply a battle to believe Jesus. It's simply a battle to believe Jesus. I know that sounds basic, but that's the reality. You know, we're going to talk about a bunch of steps and a bunch of principles and things, and it it might get complicated in this lesson over the next few weeks, but I want you to remember, at a high level, it's just a battle to believe Jesus. You can boil it all down to that. It's a battle to learn what He has said and yield to what His words above what we might think or feel or want. It's learning to yield to Him in the face of our raging desires for sin. And that's what we call, just in shorthand, fighting by faith. Now, we're going to unpack this uh, over the next two weeks, but, and we could go to so many passages, but we're going to go to Ephesians 4 and look at this because we can pretty much house everything we want to say in this passage from Ephesians 4. I think this is one of the most... If you want to kind of dog ear, so to speak, any passage on growth, I think this is one of the most fundamental. Ephesians 4, 
And we're just going to parachute in here to verse 22. These are probably familiar verses to you, but Paul's reminding these Ephesians how they had learned Christ. They were taught the gospel, and the gospel meant that Christ was, Christ was going to change them. They weren't, they weren't supposed to stay in, their old, in the old creation, in the old ways, the old sin patterns of the, the old Adam. Instead, in Christ, they're a new creature. They've been given a new identity in Him, new power. And so they were to learn to yield to Christ and make progress. And so he reviews this with them. We'll pick it up in 21. He says, or actually verse 20, he says, That's not the way you learn Christ, meaning staying in your sin. Verse 21, Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, here it is. Number one, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And, number two, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And, number three, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul gives us in this text, when it comes to fighting by faith, he gives us essentially three, um, three essential practices of fighting by faith. I just realized that I didn't review my animations. So it's going to be interesting. So we'll see what comes up when. <laughs> we'll have to, uh, my PowerPoint. So we're going to look at three essential practices. That's going to come up at some point, but not right now. Um, and, and you see these in this text. And these, these are basically Paul's strategy for how to, how to make progress in the Christian life, how to grow. And it involves three things, okay? Today we're going to cover the first two practices, and the next week we're going to cover the last one. So, extended, extended time here in a couple verses. Alright, so number one, the first practice that we read there is what I like to describe as trashing the old self. We have to trash the old self. So if you want to fight by faith, this is, the first, this is the first step. Paul says we have to put off our old selves. So what does this mean? Let's, just, let's start there. What does this mean? Just let's, let's talk about the verb here, to put off. Well, Paul is using a clothing metaphor here. Discard your, your old clothes. So... Pretend that one day you're at Liberty. Let's say there's some construction happening. Hypothetically. (laughs) And there's just been a torrential downpour for like three days. And there's mud everywhere. Some of you guys are like, hmm, let's see where he's going with this. And you have the bright idea to go out with your your buddies and um, slide around in in the mud pit. You know, I'm not saying I ever did that. And you go, you, you, you think it looks fun, and you go sliding around, but what we don't realize is that the dirt in Virginia is red clay, and it stains absolutely everything. So when you get back to your dorm and you try to wash your clothes, the stains will not come out, no matter how hard you wash those clothes. 
So the only thing you can do is throw them away. And that's the idea here. That's what Paul is saying that we do with our old self. We can't rehabilitate it. We can't wash it out. We have to throw it away. It is useless. It's corrupted. It's unprofitable. You can't recover it. You can only throw it away. All right, so let's, let's hold that in our minds, okay? That's what this idea is of put off. You said throw it in the trash. But that raises another question. What are we throwing in the trash? What is this old self that he's talking about here? Literally, it's the old man, okay? The old man or the old Adam. You could think of it that way. You might think of it as the old humanity, the old Adamic nature we were born into, that nature that's fully deceived, and as a result of that, it's fully corrupt. Paul goes on to describe our old self very carefully, and I think he does it, we'll, we'll see why he's, he's going on to describe it, because it comes with a lot of, a lot of implications for us in our fight against our fight against this, our sin patterns, okay? So, notice what he says about it. Initially, he says it belongs to our former manner of life. Do you see that? Put off this old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. And he's talking about our lives as unbelievers, what we used to be before we came to faith in Jesus. It's how we used to think. It's how we used to live. It's what we used to value before our lives were consumed with Christ, oriented around Him. Now this implies then that putting off your old selves involves refusing to identify with your sin. It involves refusing to identify with your sin. Because it's not who you are anymore. It belongs to your former manner of life. You've got to realize that your sin patterns, as, as serious as they may feel, as difficult as it seems to overcome, this is not you anymore. used to be. But it's not you anymore. Now that you're in Christ, you're fixed in Him. You can't keep thinking of yourself as an anxious person. Even if you struggle with anxiety. You can't keep thinking of yourself as a gay person if you struggle with same-sex attraction. You can't keep thinking of yourself as an angry person if you struggle with anger. Why? Because that was the old you, according to this verse. That was the old fill-in-the-blank, your name. Now you are in Christ. Your life is hidden in Him. And as we're going to see, probably next time, you've been given a new set of clothes, a new identity, in Him. It's been created in Christ by the truth. That's who you are now. No matter what you feel, no matter what's going on inside you, this is your identity. You're a new creation that still struggles, maybe, with fear. A new creation that still struggles with lust. It's, it's, have, it's, try to, it's, got, try, it's having a hard time leaving that behind. It's a new creature that's, that's struggling with anger, yes, but it's not your fundamental identity. So we have to start. If you're a Christian, you are in Christ, so we have to refuse to identify with our sin, as tempting as it is to do that. Now, notice what else he says about the old self. Not only is it belongs to our former manner of life, but it's also corrupt through deceitful desires. So we'll just say, 
it's, it's, uh, it's corrupt. Okay, we'll start there. Our old self is contaminated because it's characterized by sinful behavior. It's corrupt, Paul says. We get angry, we gossip, we grow resentful, we struggle with envy, we tear people down, we exalt ourselves in our conversations, we disrespect our parents, we lust, we lie, and it just, the list goes on. That's corruption. And this implies then, since we're corrupt, this implies we have to recognize the sinfulness of these activities that we're involved in. Or, like I said here, you have to recognize the sinfulness of sin. If we're going to put off our sin, we have to see its corruption. It dishonors God. It devastates our fellow humans. It's not good for us. And like we saw last week, we're all tempted to think that our sin is not that bad. Right? We minimize it. We make excuses for it. We label it with something different that's less severe. But if we're going to obey the command to put off the old self, then we have to know that our sin is actually a severe corruption. This is not good stuff that we have been involved in. For example, we've got to know the dangers of lust. Let's just take that as an example. We have to know what the Bible says about these things. The dangers that the Bible spells out for us very clearly. Or let's say, take something like that we call irritability. Right? We have to see that Underneath irritability, which sounds contained, is really a murderous heart, an angry heart, right? It's going to cause serious damage if we let that irritability go unchecked. So we've got to recognize that our old self is corrupt through and through. We've got to recognize the sinfulness of our old selves if we're going to put it off, okay? So if there's a particular pattern, application here, particular pattern that you're involved in, study what the Bible has to say on that. Study what it actually is at its root, and then begin to load up your mind with the reality of what you're involved in. But notice, he goes on in describing this corruption of the old self. He tells us where it comes from. He says that the corruption is fueled by the desires of deceit. That's how the NASB translates that phrase. And what he, what, he, what he means is, you and I want the corruption. We crave it. We desire it. We want, we want it, and we pursue it in our old selves. Our old selves desire the sin. We crave it. And this is a very, very interesting little phrase that deserves some comment here. If you're reading from an ESV, how many of you are reading from an ESV? How many an NASB? <laughs> Woo! Um, they're both good literal translations. Um, how about something different? NIV, NLT, anything like that? Just curious of what we're dealing with out there. Okay. So, you've got to hang with me, okay? The ESV, since that's the majority here, the ESV translates this as deceitful desires. Do you see that? And that implies then, according to that translation of this phrase, it implies that it's the desires that are doing the deceiving. Make sense? Deceitful desires. That's, there's certainly truth to that. And I think we can find that in other passages like James 1. 
talks about our desires enticing us to sin. But I think that it's actually the other way around in this text. It's the deception that's churning up the craving for corruption. So if you're reading from an NASB, it translates it more woodenly. It doesn't, the ESV gives a more of an interpretive translation, but the NASB just translates it like this. The desires of deceit. The desires of deceit. And it could be interpreted like this. The desires that are produced by deceit. Or the desires that spring up from deception. So, say it in reverse, we're deceived, and that's why we crave the evil that we crave. Because we think it's good, when it's actually not. And I think this, uh, a lot of reasons why I think that that's a better interpretation of that text. So, if you have those questions, feel feel free to ask me at some point. We can talk about it. But this lines up with what we learned in Genesis 3, several weeks back, with Eve's temptation and transgression. Do you guys remember that? You're like, we've slept since then. Um, Basically, you remember what happened. Eve's interacting with this snake, and she's subtly deceived in the interaction. And then her deception caused a wrong assessment of that tree that she was forbidden to eat. The text says that she thought it was good for food. Not true. It's going to kill her. It's not good. It's not, it's not going to sustain life. So she had a wrong assessment, deceived assessment, and then because she perceived that tree as good, what happened next? She craved it. The text says it was to be desired to make one wise. Her deception led to a craving. It led to a desire for that perceived wisdom. And then that desire led her to transgression, to actually take the fruit and eat it. And it's that same progression here in Ephesians 4. Ultimately, our old nature is, at its most fundamental level, it is deceived. If you miss anything else about this, just remember that. Okay? Our old nature is deceived. You cannot trust it. And that deception leads to us craving things that are going to kill us. And so we transgress. We do the insane. And think it's going to turn out okay. So why am I detailing all that out? Because I want you to see that putting off the old self, trashing the old self, is more than simply discarding bad behavior. Awkward pause. Because that's important. Okay? Discarding the old self is more than just discarding bad behaviors. It includes bad behaviors. We have to go upstream here. Paul says we have to put off the entirety of the old self. Which includes our deceived thinking. Those lies we believe churn up our desires for evil and then we act on that in our sin patterns. In other words, if you struggle with sin, you can know that you're deceived. Pretty simple. This implies then, okay, that the old self is constantly talking to you. Because you have to put it off. 
It's your dark passenger, as one, one song says. Love that imagery. Just riding along, you know, with us. He's the dark passenger. And he's constantly talking to us. Underneath our sin patterns is, is this reel of thinking. Uh, we're, we're meditating on stuff. We're evaluating. We're making assessments about what's good, what's beneficial. And if it's, if it's not rooted in the Bible, it's deceived. So if we're going to put off the old self, we need to get our thoughts out in the open, or like I'm saying it here, we need to capture the, old, the thoughts of the old self. Because often we don't even know what's going on. We're so used to, to acting in certain ways and thinking in certain ways that we don't even recognize when we're doing it. We need to get these thoughts out in the open, as difficult as that might be to face. We need to be able to evaluate our thoughts and to compare them with what Scripture actually says. And we're going to see that in a minute. And I encourage people to write out what they're thinking in the moment of temptation. Nothing magical to that. I just, I, I just can't think myself out of a paper bag. So I have to write everything down. <laughs> Especially if I'm going to do any kind of evaluating. So I like to tell people to capture what's going on because if we're tempted to sin, it's, it's guaranteed that lies are swirling around in there. All right? Now we're going to do an extended illustration here, but let me just summarize this, this step, okay? This trashing the old self. You could say it like this. Trashing the old self is habitually discarding old ways of thinking that lead to old ways of living. To trash the old self means that we're habitually, regularly discarding old ways of thinking that lead to old ways of living. Now let's, let's give a, an extended illustration here. So, let me say one caveat. In lessons like these, you know, our hearts are all the same. So the lies we believe, the, the ways our heart traffics, they're all very similar to one another. And I do a lot of counseling. I have to counsel my own heart. And so when I write illustrations, I write the first thing that comes to my mind. And it doesn't have anyone's face on Okay, so if I'm talking and it's like, how does he know this about my heart? I don't. I'm just giving an illustration that's common to man. Okay, so I don't have anybody's mind in or anybody's face or situation involved here. So just want to preempt that a little bit. All right, let's let's talk about let's illustrate what this process might look like with uh, maybe uh, anxiety or fear. All right, so first step, you're looking at trashing the old self, and you're going to refuse to identify with that anxiety. Refuse to identify with it. It's going to sound something like this. I realize I'm often afraid. Yes, that's true. But that's not my identity anymore. I'm not enslaved to it like I used to be, because now I'm in Christ. That was old clay, old clay who is hanging around and tempting me to be afraid. I know it's going to be a battle, but Christ has given me his new life, and now he's going to help me live it out. 
right? So don't identify. Don't identify. Step two, you've got to recognize the sinfulness of it. You say, man, I'm tempted to minimize this in my heart. I say things like, I'm just stressed out. Or, I, you know, if circumstance happens, and I'll blame, it, blame my anxiety on my circumstances. You know, I'm just doing fine, and all of a sudden I hit that hard exam, and, oh, now I'm anxious. It's the exam's fault, you know. Not how I'm responding. But I'm, I'm recognizing that half the time I don't even think of this as sin against God. But, Lord, your command to me is to be anxious for nothing. Philippians 4, 6. It's truly a corruption and it's causing lots of problems in my life if I sit down and think about it. I often hurt others because I'm afraid. I won't take risks because I'm afraid. I'm often indecisive because I'm afraid. Forgive me, Lord, and help me cultivate courage. That's looking like step number two. You're beginning to recognize the sinfulness of what you're involved in. Step three, okay, expose the thoughts. Okay, in this step, I would take some time and start thinking through the patterns. If you're anxious, when are you most anxious? What does that look like? What circumstances is God continuing to bring to reveal that anxiety in your heart? Are there any recurring times or times you can anticipate? I'd definitely make a note of that, and then you're going to want to get those. That's going to be your, your teachable moments where you can begin to smoke out the old man or woman and what, they're, what it's saying, right? And the particular lies that you may be tempted to believe. Now, let me just give an illustration of that, okay? Let's say you're a dude and, you know, you're, you find yourself, you struggle with, with being anxious, worst-case scenarios, and now you've just started dating the girl of your dreams, Okay? That girl you've been hoping to date for the last year. And you decide to kind of roll the dice and send her a goofy text. Right? I'm just going to do it. She doesn't respond. An hour goes by, still no response. Two hours go by, still no response. She normally responds in three minutes. Why isn't she responding? What's going on? Your heart starts racing. What if she thinks I'm an idiot and is second-guessing her decision to date me? So, you send her another text. Hey, are you there? No response. Oh, my word. Why did I even say that? This is where your mind starts going. Why did I even say that? Maybe I really am an idiot. How could I even, how could I recover? How could I make myself look better? How could I act like, I didn't really mean that? Or, oh, that was my friend, my roommate. Start lying. (laughs) Took my phone. You panic, and you start hawking her on social media. And you're not posting anything. You're just looking around to see, has she posted on anybody else? Is is she she on her phone? Is there evidence that she's checked her phone and not responded to me? Pretty quickly, your thoughts can descend into the abyss of fear, and that fear can drive you to do some pretty desperate stuff. Now, it's a funny illustration, but if you pause in the moment and ask, 
Why am I afraid? You'll realize pretty quickly that you're afraid that you've messed up this really good thing. You're afraid that she might break up with you and you might miss the opportunity of a lifetime. You're afraid that your life will be lame without her. Now, as we're going to see, the old self is there. He's whispering his lies to you. But right here, we're just getting these thoughts out in the open. It's the pause to say, what's going on inside of me? What am I saying to myself? What's racing around in my mind? All that stuff that I just detailed out for you, get that out. Because you can be like, oh my goodness. (laughs) That's what my heart's doing. And that leads to our next practice. And that's to renew your mind with truth. How are you going to recognize lies? You have to know what's true, right? Renew your mind with the truth. That's exactly what Paul says in the next phrase. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So to truly put that fearful and manipulative self away, that self that's running around and hawking social media... To do that, you've got to renew your mind with truth. We can't begin to evaluate lies without this essential practice. Okay, so what is renewal? Renewal just means when something's made new. Here Paul's talking about our thinking. And we're to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, he says. And the only thing that does this renovation is God's word, his truth. Before we came to Christ, our minds were filled with vain and empty thinking. Paul says that over in chapter 4, verse 17. They were based on our own sinful perceptions of how things are. But now we have a new capacity. We are alive to the truth, and we can receive it now through the power of the Spirit. And as we learn God's Word, the lies are exposed, and He enables us to embrace His truth. So how does this happen? How does this renewal process happen? Well, you can think of it in sort of two senses, all right? There's a generic sense of renewal. And that's happening anytime God's word comes to you. Anytime you receive it in faith. So how many times do you sit here at TBC and the Spirit has turned on the lights, so to speak, for you? In your heart. He's turned on the lights of a particular lie that you used to think, and then that was exposed through the teaching of Scripture. That's renewal. You're being renovated through the public teaching of God's word. And that's precisely why Paul says that God raised up leaders in the church over in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. He raised up these leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So we should expect that when we come here, we're going to be renovated, we're going to be renewed. But there's another way than the generic renewal. I call it a tactical kind of renewal. A renewal that, that, that happens in the, the micro of our lives. It happens as we, as we work backwards from our besetting sins. backwards to our hearts and the lies that we're tempted to believe. And I like to think about it like a, like a tactical mind renewal because we're getting specific. This isn't, this isn't a generic kind of top-down approach from the, from the teaching. This is a specific kind of bottom-up approach from my life. We're waging war against the particular lies that beset us today. 
that make us less useful today, that detract, detract from God's glory today in my life. Now, if you've never done this before, you're probably going to need some help. Okay? Because if you're caught in a pattern of sin, Christ specifically says He wants to help you through His people. Through others who have had to humble themselves and learn how to fight by faith. Just like we've all had to do that. We've all had help. So if this is new, I definitely would encourage you to reach out. Okay? Because we saw this our need for help specifically over in Galatians 6.1 last week. But it's even here in Ephesians 4. And it's both before and after our text. Back in verse 16 of chapter 4, Paul tells us the church grows as we speak the truth to each other in love. So look at this. It says, um, excuse me, back in verse 15. Rather, he says, speaking the truth in love, or by speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. So the way the body grows, the way the body matures, is as each one of us are growing and we're speaking the truth in love to each other. We're helping each other discern the lies, in other words. Now, if you, if you fast forward right after our text, look in verse 25. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, having put away those deceptions, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So, it's evident that Paul envisions that we as the church are to help each other in this mind renewal process. Because when you're deceived, you don't know it. It's hard to recognize it. It's hard to kind of get under it. So, what does its tactical mind renewal look like? How should we go about it? Well, let's pick back up where we left off from the first, first point. All right. So, let's say you've gotten those thoughts out as that anxious young man who's worried about his, whether a girl's going to break up with him or not. And you've gotten those thoughts out on paper. And now the mind renewal process kicks in. Okay? It starts by evaluating the thoughts of the old self. We've got to take a look at them and evaluate them. We've got to go fast here. Once you hear what you're saying to yourself in these moments of temptation, once it's out on paper, you need to ask, is this true? Is it biblical? How would the Bible address my own thinking? Now, this is the hard part because when you're deceived, it's hard to kind of recognize what's, what's going on. There's often truth laced in with our deceptions, and it makes it difficult. And that's why we need other people. The thoughts feel really natural, so they seem to make so much sense to us. So, back to the poor guy that sent a dumb text to his girlfriend. All right, now he's panicked. He was ultimately afraid of her breaking up with him, but why? Because he would believed that his best life was bound up in that girl. His greatest good involves having her. He couldn't bear the thought of losing her because he couldn't envision anyone better for him to be with. His life would be subpar. It would be plan B if he didn't get married, and especially if he didn't marry her. But is that true? How would the Bible address that? Well, first, the scriptures say that marriage is indeed a good thing. It's a great blessing, tremendous joy, but it also says so is singleness. There's nothing wrong with pursuing marriage, looking forward to it, getting really excited, nervous about dating that girl. But is it his greatest good? No. Our greatest good is not getting married. 
our greatest good is being conformed to Christ. Romans 8.28 Will your life be subpar if you never get married? Will it be a plan B or God's second best? No. God only has a plan A for His people because He's sovereign and His will cannot be thwarted. And that brings up another truth for this young man, doesn't it? Can a dumb text thwart God's sovereign will? No. If God has willed that he marry her, guess what? Dude's going to marry her. But if God hasn't willed that he's going to marry her, the guy won't marry her. But in the moment, it certainly feels like he's deciding his fate. Right? His real-time texts might cost him. And let's say it does. Let's say she does break up with him over the text. Then he'll be tempted to dwell on that dumb text for the next few months. What if I just didn't say that? What if I'd said this instead? Maybe she would stay with me. Maybe we would have been married. You know? None of you have ever been there, right? And on it goes. What's the lie underneath that? That I'm sovereign over my life. I'm going to put it that way. Well, yeah, that's actually what's happening. That old self is there saying, you're, you're in control. If you just, if you wouldn't have done that, you could have changed your life. I'm believing that I'm the master of my fate, but thankfully we are not. Our good God, the God who loves us more than we can imagine, the God who will give us all things, that God is in control, and He is working all things out for my conformity to Christ, whether I like it or not. He's committed to it, and there's rest for the anxious heart in that reality. Now, we could keep going and keep evaluating this guy's thoughts with more Bible and more truth, but I think you get the point. There are lies from the old self, and they're lurking around. They're churning up all kinds of idolatrous desires. So we've got to evaluate those thoughts with the Word of God. And next, the evaluation just doesn't... Is once you kind of get some ideas of like, okay, here's some lies, here's some truth, now you've got to load up your mind with the specific truth. You've got to get it in you so that it's accessible in the temptation so that it starts governing you, it becomes part of your convictions. Our young man needs to know that God is sovereign. And he needs to believe it deeply. He needs to know those texts, those scriptures that teach about that, so he can get that in his heart. And I like to tell folks to make this a daily practice, to review those scriptures at the beginning and the end of every day, in the presence of God, kind of before Him, Work on memorizing them so you can recall them at any time. If you need to, make this the entirety of your quiet time in the morning. So yeah, you can be slogging through your your yearly Bible reading in Leviticus, but I guarantee you that God cares about this anxious sin pattern in your life and wanting to help you address it. So I'd expedite that up to say, okay, we have to start here. And if you don't have a quiet time, guess what? You should start right here. um, And make make this your quiet time, reviewing these texts, praying through them before the Lord.
And it might sound like this, okay? Take our friend. As he's meditating on Romans 8.28, that God's working out all things for his good. It might sound like something like this. Father, you know how much I want this relationship to work out. I'm tempted to respond with fear if, my, if it looks threatened. You know, I'm tempted to manipulate. But Lord, I trust that you are in complete control of this relationship. I trust that you can even override my stupid texts. I'm not excusing my immaturity, but even if I am immature at times, I can't thwart your sovereign plans. So whether we work out or we don't, it will be according to your perfect and good will. It will be for my ultimate best. You've promised that you are working all things for my good, for my complete conformity to Christ. Romans 8.28 This means if my worst case scenario happens, that it's coming from your good hand and will end up as the best thing that could have happened to me when I make it to the kingdom. You are good and you do good like the psalmist says. Help me to trust you with this relationship today, Father, and to live boldly and joyfully for Christ and not anxiously for myself. If I'm struggling in a sin pattern and it's difficult for me to renew my mind and think rightly about it, I will write out a prayer like that and I will pray that every day. Take your time. Think through it. Go to the Bible references. Add those in there. And make that, put that on your lips day in and day out before the Lord and you will see some incredible, incredible change in your heart. Now, last thing I want to say here is what else this would look like is by planning what your life could look like if you really believe it's true. You're planning out what your life looked like if you really believed this truth. All you're doing here is you're saying if, if you've got this truth that Romans 828, uh, yeah, 8.28 you know, for our guy, and he's beginning to think about that, Ask himself the question, if I really believe that God is in control of everything, if I really believe that he's, he's working all things for my good, how would that impact that moment when she doesn't respond to my text? What would I do or not do if I really believed that God was in control? Now, this is absolutely crucial. And we're going to take the entire Sunday next week to work this out. Paul talks about this as putting on the new self. But I'm, I'm, I'm putting it here in this renewal of our mind category because we're thinking. We're thinking about what could happen, what ought to happen if I'm believing these realities. So let's take our friend, okay? If he really believed that God was in control and was going to work everything for his good, some really sweet things would happen. Okay? First, he would actually be freed up himself, to be himself. He wouldn't be constantly trying to present an image. He would be freed up to be himself. He wouldn't be constantly focused on himself, calculating his speech, obsessing over it later. Second, not only would he be comfortable in his own skin, but he would be free to serve and invest in his girlfriend for the glory of God. He'll actually be able to speak truthfully to her, because something greater is motivating him than simply making her happy and keeping her with him. And that is to glorify God. He's more concerned with making God happy than her happy. And finally, he'll be cultivating the heart of a biblical husband who must fear the Lord above his own wife. Now, as he's plotting that out, 
that is incentivizing. That's worth reviewing for this young man, okay? This is what could happen in my life if I get a hold of this thing. But he also needs to envision what it would look like in the moment he's tempted to fear her. What's he tempted to do? Is he tempted to shade the truth in his speech to keep her happy? Is he, if he is, he needs to envision how he will graciously speak truthfully to her and, and honestly to her in moments of fear. He needs to envision how he's going to commit the future of the relationship to Christ in that moment. Is he tempted to go all out and spend money he doesn't have, racking up debt on his credit card to try to impress her? Or to just kind of give off the impression that he's more well-off than he actually is? What's he, what's he tempted to do? And what would faith look like in that moment? What would obedience look like? What would the positive fruit be instead? Charting that out is absolutely crucial, as we're going to see next week. So that's, that's what we're going to... Because when you get into that moment of temptation, whether it's looking at porn or whatever it may be, and you don't know what to do instead, you're a sitting duck. There's no alternative. There's no, there's no glorious life that could be yours in Christ with fruitfulness and usefulness to others sitting there, then, you, then there's no compelling vision of the, of the good life in Christ. So we've got to have that, definitely envision that in this stage, and then next week we're going to look at what it looks like to yield our wills to Christ in that moment of temptation. I'm going to unpack that. A lot to say there. So again, land a plane here. If this sounds complicated, if this is the first time for you, don't be overwhelmed of thinking at this level. Um, all this is is learning to trust Jesus, remember? It's learning to entrust ourselves to him, to believe him above ourselves, and to yield to his words. He only asks you to trust him and entrust your life to his words. All right, we're going to end here. Uh, one housekeeping word, though, as we end. I'm going to be teaching tonight uh, in the equipping class. And I just want to let you know, those of you who come back and you've been in that class, it's going to be very similar to what I've been teaching over the last few weeks and specifically today. So if you want to go to the missions class, I'm not going to be offended, okay? Uh, it's just going to be a, a lot. It's going to be, very, it's going to be applied to the, to the series that we're talking about, so there will be some significant differences. But you've been hearing a lot of this. So if you want to go, if you want to go uh, get missions, that's, that's great too, okay? All right, you are dismissed.